Good morning. morning. You guys doing well? What a great day this is. Good to have you with us. If you have if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians. That's where we are. We're working through the book of Galatians. Chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Freedom is the current teaching series for Freedom Christ to Set Us Free, an allegory of the gospel. That's what we'll be talking about today. Take a look at your sermon notes. Let me read some of this uh, intro so that you understand what we're talking about here today. Non-Christians will tend to hear gospel presentations as appeals to become a nice person rather than a new person. You guys know that there's a difference between being a nice person versus a new person. And oftentimes when you, when you make a gospel appeal, most people will think, oh, you just want me to be a nice person. And that's called moralism as opposed to the gospel. The gospel is about being a transformed person. It's a brand new person. And so non-Christians will tend to hear gospel presentations as appeals to become nice, a nice person rather than a new person unless we are clear in articulating the drastic difference between moralism and the gospel. Now, that's not just true with uh, unbelievers or, or non-Christians, but it's also true about us as Christians. Take a look at the next uh, little paragraph here. Even among Christians, the default mode of our, of our hearts is moralism. And this is what moralism is. That is the idea that our performance determines how God feels about us. If your expectation of God's blessing is based on how well you think you've been living the Christian life this last week, then you don't understand the gospel of grace. Isn't that crazy? But that's the default motive of our heart. So unless we are actively preaching the gospel to ourselves and others daily, beating it into our hearts continually, we will easily fall back into moralism. And one of the things you'll see here at Desiree is we don't teach you self-help how-to kind of messages. We give you the gospel week in and week out. Why is that? Because me, first and foremost, I need to hear it. All three services, I got a front row seat, okay? I preach to myself first and foremost, and then I let that overflow hopefully hit many of you, and you're hearing it, and your life is being transformed by the gospel. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray the gospel. We'll pray, then we'll look at this text, and then we'll unpack these notes. You guys ready? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we are delighted to be here today. We absolutely love you. We love your presence. And we know, God, we agree with Romans 1.16. We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, the, the life transformation of everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. We pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that the amazing message of the gospel, that Christ has suffered the full wrath of God for our sin, would not just be clear to our minds, but real to our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our place and living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died, giving to us your perfect record. And there's nothing we can do to add to it and nothing that we have done that would take away from it. So by your grace, we put our faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and want to live our lives fully devoted to him for his glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this uh, text. Let me kind of bring you up to speed. If you haven't been with us in the study thus far, uh, the book of Galatians can be divided up into three sections, first two chapters of the first section. It's personal. Paul defends his epistemological authority. What? What did I just say? If you weren't with us through this series, we talked about that, epistemological authority. People were, were challenging, well, where did you get this gospel message? Well, guess where he got it? 
he encountered the risen Christ and was sent personally by the risen Christ. I would say that that's pretty solid authority, wouldn't you say? And so he defends that in the first two chapters. The next two chapters, chapters three and four, is doctrinal. So the first two are very personal. The next two, three and four, are doctrinal. He defends that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and not by our performance, not by our works. And so that's where we're finishing up chapter four today and then we head into the next section, chapters five and six, which are very practical. He talks about the practical Christian life that comes from this right doctrine, how it transforms our lives. And so let me begin reading chapter four, verse 21. This will take us to the end of the chapter. Tell me, you who desire to, to be under the law, under the law meaning you want to have your acceptance with God based on your performance by you adhering and living out the law. He says, tell me, you who desire to, to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? In other words, have you read the law lately? Because none of us live really according to the law if we really understood that. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. How many know what he's talking about there? Anybody? Show of hands? Okay. He's talking about a story that's found in, back in Genesis, and we'll, we'll talk about that story in a little bit. Let me read verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Stop there just for a minute. Look up here, because you've got to understand this story to understand what he's talking about here. You go back into Genesis, and remember Adam and Eve? They walked in the garden in the cool of the day, had relationship with God. They thought that they were smarter than God. They thought that somehow God was holding out on them. So they chose to rebel against God, and that's where things, everything has come crashing down in our, you know, and even to this day, all of our problems on this planet Earth are symptomatic to our alienation from God and uh, and so but immediately we see the plan of God as he steps in to redeem us and so he he begins to work and he works through a man by the name of Abram his name later becomes Abraham but he calls him out from his pagan people and says Abram, I want you to have relationship with me. So Abram has this encounter with God, which is unbelievable. And God says, I want to bless you so that you will be a what? A blessing to this world. I'm going to bless you so that you bless the world. Of course, we know that it's through his lineage comes the ultimate blessing, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's going to bless him to be a blessing. And part of that blessing, obviously, is relationship with God. But in that blessing comes land, land of milk and honey, and lineage, a whole bunch of people, with that within that, that people group would come the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he was excited, they were ready for it, and, and yet they reached a place after, and that's, that's ch uh, chapter 12 of Genesis, and then when you get to chapter 15, you see that he begins to doubt God's promise a bit, and in fact, Sarah, his wife, is now beyond the childbearing age. She's old and barren. And so she propositions Abram and says, hey, dude, uh, probably didn't call him dude back then, but, but, uh, but said, hey, uh, how about if, since I'm beyond the childbearing years, how about you go to bed with my Egyptian servant? And Abram said, oh, no, no, I could never do that. But if you insist, I'll sacrifice for the family. Actually, that lug nut didn't do anything. He just said, I'll do it. 
And he went, ran, jumped in bed with uh, Hagar, his wife's uh, maidservant. And by the way, let me just say something a little bit about childbearing. In this uh, ancient culture, uh, a woman's worth and value was based on childbearing. And in fact, uh, they were considered useless if they could not contribute to their uh, tribe through having children. So think of the shame that she's experiencing. And, and by the way, they knew that God had promised them not only land but lineage, and yet this is what we often do instead of waiting for God. Sin typically is a legitimate need met in an illegitimate way. We jump ahead of God. We can't wait for God. We can't trust him with it. And that's exactly what they do. They hit the panic button. She propositions uh, Abram. He does that, and I'm telling you what, it was a major mess from that point on, and you can continue to see that same mess in the Middle East even to this day. And so it's pretty, pretty interesting. And as she, and by the way, we all, part of one of the problems with our being alienated from God is that we have this psychological alienation, which is, which is shame. Every one of us struggles with shame unless we come back to God through Jesus Christ and begin to experience the, the wealth of, of, of who we are in him. We have our identity renewed through him. We begin to see the value that he places upon us and how much he loves us. That's the only thing that will rid our shame. But, but if we don't go back to him, what we tend to do is we try to put on fig leaves as we see in Adam and Eve's story in the third chapter of Genesis. We try to cover ourselves with, with work, with marriage, with having kids, with any number of, of, of good things many times in our lives that become ultimate things in our life. They become God things, they become idolatry. And it creates all kinds of problems rather than to go back to God and, and to rely on him and trust in him. And so, so that's part of that story that, that we're reading here. And so she has, she has a child. Do you remember what the child's uh, name is? That is through Hagar. Ishmael, and then later on, God certainly fulfills his promise and brings a son through Sarai, or Sarah, as her name eventually becomes, and what is his, what is his name? Isaac, yeah. And it creates major conflict in their relationship. Very, uh, very good story for us to really look at and then look at our own lives and, and how we try to deal with our own shame and how we jump ahead of God and try to fix the problems that we have rather than to come back to him and really to find the completeness and the contentedness that can only be found in him. And, uh, and so... We look at this story as we continue on verse 24. Now, this uh, may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. That speaks of the law, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. It's kind of a slam on the, on the Israelites during that time. That's what he's saying. And then verse 26, but the Jerusalem from above, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. Verse 27, stop there just for a minute. Verse 27 is just an astounding promise in God's word. When I read it this last week as I began to reflect on it, we're gonna work through some of the applications, the implications a little bit later on. But listen to what he says here. For it is written, he's, he's quoting Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice! Oh, barren one who does not bear. What? This was great shame in this culture, being barren. And there's a lot of things that we, in our culture, that we 
kind of self-imposed shame, if I don't have a great career, if I don't have a lot of money, if I don't have kids, if I don't ever get married, any number of things that create shame within our own lives. Some of you this morning are experiencing shame, it's self-imposed shame, because you didn't acquire, you didn't accomplish, you didn't achieve what you thought you should have accomplished, acquired, or achieved. You didn't do it, and therefore you have great shame. And this is what he's saying. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. That almost sounds crazy. Why would you do that? Right here, here's the promise. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Man. If this morning you could get a hold of that one verse, that would be enough to, it would revolutionize your life. It would, it would drastically change you and you begin to find a, a, a fruitfulness and a fulfillment. That was part of the land, the land he wanted to give them was, was fulfillment, land of milk and honey, strength and satisfaction. There's, there's, a, there's a fulfillment and a fruitfulness that speaks of the lineage that our lives have an impact. That all comes ultimately through Jesus. He can give to you that what nothing in this world can give to you. That's what he's saying here. We'll work through some more of those implications later in our study. Verse 28, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise, are children of promise. So you see the contrast? So we're working through this contrast and you're gonna see in, a, in the notes, I've got this in a kind of a chart form and we're gonna be going back and forth between this chart, religion, Hagar versus gospel, Sarah. And this is what he's doing <clears throat> with this uh, allegory. And that's what we'll do to see where we are on that chart, whether we tend to be more on the left side of the chart, religion, Hagar, versus the right side of the chart, which is gospel, Sarah. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, check this out, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. You know the conflict in the Middle East? It's right here. Ishmael and Isaac continue to battle in the Middle East. All the issues over there are right here. This is what's so profound about God's word. That was conceived right here because Abraham and Sarah took, things, took life into their own hands and thought that, well, God's not gonna get this done. He can't fulfill his promise, so we'll do it ourselves. We'll make it happen. And they created a mess that continues even to this day. Notice what it says, verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, so he makes it, wants us to understand, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is God's infallible, inerrant word to us this morning. So let's look at this uh, chart, see where we might be. Our tendency is to be on the left side. We need to move to the right side. And so the first religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Now, uh, the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. So these false teachers were, in, were infiltrating these churches in Galatia, and this is what they were teaching. They were saying, believe, obey, and you'll be saved. And that's called paganism, that's called moralism. And Paul came out and said, no, 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 that's not how the gospel goes. The gospel is believe, you're saved, and you'll obey. The obedience comes as a fruit, as a, as a byproduct of, of being saved. 
that you first believe. And so, and, and that's where we oftentimes struggle. Verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? So to be under the law means relying on the law for your standing with God. It's moralism. Kind of, it's, as I stated last week, paganism, trying to appease God so that he'll take the heat off possibly and he'll bless me and then I can have the successful life that I want. So the, the very law that you, uh, that you say that you follow contradicts you. That's what he's saying. You haven't, let, you haven't read the law lately. You don't understand the law because none of us can live up to it. We can't earn or achieve our right standing with God by, by the law. That's what he's saying. And uh, I gave you some great cross-references there, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. How many are familiar with verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2 of Ephesians? How many have memorized those verses? Anybody? You guys know what I'm talking about? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Those are great memory verses, by the way. That would be worth memorizing. How many are afraid to raise your hand this morning because you might think that I'm going to call you up to actually recite it? <laughs> okay, how many know, know what I'm talking about? For by grace are you saved through faith? How many are familiar with it now? Okay, you can raise your hand. Okay, why don't you guys come on up here and I'll have you... I'll have you... Uh, Recite it. No, I won't do that. But for by grace are you saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. That is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And then verse 10 is really simply amazing. It says, for we are God's workmanship. The word workmanship, the Greek word is poema, literally means we get our word poem, but our masterpiece. We are his masterpiece, created unto Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See, the more I move from the left side of the column, this chart, to the right side, and I understand I'm accepted through Jesus Christ. I have all the acceptance, security, significance I'll ever need. He begins to do something deep within my heart that's not becoming a a nice person, but a brand new person, and I begin to radiate his beauty and his glory. And people look at my life as I respond to the things and the circumstances and the people of my life, and they go, whoa, what is that about? It's not, not pretense. It's not something I'm trying to, trying to stir up. It's just something that becomes a natural outflow of understanding that I have Christ. I know him. I know the God who loves me. He accepts me. I have relationship with him. And then look at the next contrast, slave and free. This kind of speaks of our motivation. You've heard me say this a lot. Um, the gospel is not good advice. It's not good advice about what we must do to be right with God. It is good news about what has been done. It's been done. Everything has been done for you to be reconciled to God forever. It's been done through Jesus Christ. So it's good news, good news about what has been done to make us right with God. It's been, and that's been done through, through Jesus Christ. Now think about this. If it's based on what you must do, obviously that's, on, that's under religion and that's gonna create fear and insecurity. How, how do you know whether or not you've done enough? And you probably blew it this last week. You should be fearful and insecure if it's based on your performance. In fact, some of you blew it before you even rolled out of bed this morning. That sounds crazy. Probably did. I mean, and, uh, and so, but it's not based on that. Move it to the right side, right side of the chart, gospel. To the degree you begin to understand the good news, it will bring indescribable, indestructible joy. How many are familiar with the Christmas story and what was said to the shepherds in the field by the angels at night? It says this in Luke 2.10. Good news of what? 
A great joy. It was a little weak. Some of you probably didn't even know what I was talking about here, but let's do that one more time. Good news of what? Very good. Good news of great joy. Good news of great joy, indescribable, indestructible joy. See, the false teachers were telling the Galatians that they weren't really children of Abraham unless they were obeying the law of Moses, even though they believe in Jesus even though they believe in Christ. And so Paul's basic point is that the moment you believe in Christ, you are the children of Abraham. And then Paul goes on to kind of say, hey, but by the way, he, he had two sons, two groups. Abraham had two sons. One was from the slave woman and one was from the free woman. That's verse 22. Therefore, there are two ways of being related to Abraham. Because the false teacher is saying, well, you're not related to Abraham. And so Paul comes back with this defense and says, yeah, well, there's two, there's two sons. There were two women. And so therefore, there are two ways of being related to Abraham. One right way, which is the free Sarah, Genesis 12, 1 through 4 way. And then there's the wrong way, which is the slave Hagar, Genesis 16, 4 through 5 way. I love uh, what Peter, speaking to second generation Christians, says in 1 Peter 1, 8. And he's almost like saying this as a matter of fact. It's very convicting for me, and yet it's very, very compelling because it's something that I aspire to, to experience regularly because he says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled, talking about Jesus, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible? Yeah, it's indescribable. You can't even put words to it. There is so much joy in your heart as it relates to your relationship with God. You can't even tell people about it. You can't put words around it. And it's indestructible. It's glorious. There's nothing in this world, no circumstance, no person, no thing that can take it away from you. Isn't that crazy? I wish I lived there more. I don't. But that's what I aspire to. I want that. I want to live in the middle, in the middle of that. And I want, to, I want to remember every day Jesus paid it all. That's what it is. The good news is that he paid it all. Paid in full up on the cross when he said it is finished. Paid in full. He not only purchased our forgiveness of sins once and for all, but also our ticket to heaven and everything else we'll ever need. What do you need this morning? It's yours through Jesus Christ. I mean, that's, that's how profound that is. And, and that in itself should bring this indescribable and indestructible joy. Good news, great joy. Here's the next contrast. Flesh versus promise. Flesh is willpower. Promise is God's power. Now, last week we talked about uh, how we tend to play God. How we either, we either, this is a form of playing God, running from God, not allowing God to do what he wants to do in our lives, be our savior, be our Lord. So there's a couple different ways we do this. And by the way, this is how we tend to cope with our shame in our life. As we deal with our shame, we try to cope with it in a couple different ways. One is through self-discovery. Remember the younger brother and the, younger brother and the elder, uh, the elder, I can't even talk this morning. <laughs> I'm trying to talk too fast. I had the same problem with the first service. I thought I was going to do better this service, but no way. The, the, L, uh, the uh, prodigal son story, it's the younger brother in the prodigal son story. Yes, that's right. Okay, got it. So the prodigal son story, 15th chapter of Luke, you got the younger brother, it's self-discovery. I'm going to break all the rules because I know that there's something out there that's going to satisfy me more than 
being on the farm with the Father. It's a picture of our relationship with God. It's somewhere in creation. I can find deep, deep satisfaction out there apart from him. Break all the rules. God doesn't own me. I'll do my own thing. That's the younger brother. The elder brother, what did he do? It was through moral conformity. I'm gonna keep all the rules. God owes me. If I do all the right things, God owes me. That's how we typically uh, try to do that. Both of these are ways of willpower. Verse 23, Paul sums up the difference in, in the birth's flesh versus promise. The Christian life is, is a supernatural way of life with all provision coming from God. That's why I like Philippians 2, 12 through 13. It says, work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for it. We've got it. Therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. To will, yeah, he gives us the desire, but he also gives us the ability to do what pleases him. It's a supernatural kind of life. And so this is how we could kind of summarize this before we move on. Yesterday's failures, today's burdens, tomorrow's uncertainties are no match for God's amazing grace working for you, in you, and through you. What are you facing? What are your struggles? What are your difficulties? They're no match for God's grace. By the way, what's the measure? If you're going to measure God's power working through you, for you, and in you, what would be the measure of that when you look at the scripture? Anybody? How about the cross? How about the resurrection? Yeah, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 8.11 of Romans. If the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he's saying, look out. That's amazing. So which side of the column? Are you trying to do it on your own? Is it willpower? Or is it through God's power? And then here's the next contrast. Law versus grace. Law has to do with wage. It's about earning. It's about achieving. Grace is a, is a gift. It's about embracing and accepting. Verses 24 through 26, the women represent two covenants. And so you see this contrast in these verses. Hagar and her son Ishmael equals the law covenant of Sinai and the earthly city of Jerusalem representing people who haven't accepted Christ and therefore are in slavery. Verse 25 they rely on their own ability rather than the supernatural grace of God. You know, it's interesting that the most religious people can be the furthest from freedom. That's how it was with the elder brother and the prodigal son's story. He, was, he had left the father without leaving the farm. He was the furthest from the father. So it's quite, quite interesting there. Sarah and her son Isaac equals grace covenant of the heavenly city of Jerusalem representing people who have accepted Christ and therefore are free. By the way, you might think you're free, but if you don't know Jesus, you don't even understand what freedom is. We're gonna talk more about that next week, about the freedom that we have in Christ. It's, it's unbelievable, it's incomparable to anything that you might think that you have living in this free country. If, you can live in a free country as we live in today, but if you don't have Jesus, you're in bondage. And, and it's, it's, the Bible's really clear about that. We'll talk more about that, about that next week. But we are to receive a righteousness, a right standing with God provided through the supernatural acts of God in history, the miraculous birth, the sin-bearing death, the death-defeating resurrection of Christ. It tells us in Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under what? Anybody? But under grace. We're not under law. That's not how we, and as we said, that's, it's not about moralism. It's not about how well you've lived the Christian life this week, whether or not you deserve his blessing. 
We live under grace. We get his blessing because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. That's why it's so astounding. There's, there's no other belief system that even comes close to, to understanding this. And believe me, when you understand it, it transforms your life. And, uh, and so what does that look like? What does it look like to live under, under grace as opposed to under law? Here it is. I, I gave you a number of things here to look at. So under law, I obey to get things from God. Under grace, I obey to enjoy and display God's glory. So why would you be willing to obey whatever God says about every area of your life, whether you agree with him or not? I mean, that's, that's the Christian life, is that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey God in every area of my life, whether I agree with him or not. Why would anybody do that? Does that sound a little insane? No, not, not if you understand God's amazing love and wisdom, his perfect love and his, and his infinite wisdom. And, and he wrote it down in this book, the Bible, and it only makes sense this is wisdom to align your life up with his wisdom in, this, in his word, your sexuality, your finances, every dimension of your life to align it up because to do otherwise is folly. It's stupidity. It doesn't make sense. And it's a trampling on his love and wisdom and because of all that you have through Christ. And so you obey him to enjoy and display God's glory. Here's the next thing. What about bad circumstances? Well, under law, you're going to be angry at God or, or yourself. But when it comes to grace, bad circumstances, you realize it's not punitive. I'm going through a real bad time, but God's not punishing me. Why? Because all of that punishment was placed upon Jesus on the cross for you and I. He's not getting double, double payment for that. That was placed upon Christ. So it's not punitive, but it, yes, yes, it's purifying. And his fatherly love is more than enough. See, that's grace. That's grace. Now, if you believe that good people deserve a good life, then... You're going to be disillusioned by the inequities of life because th bad things do happen to good people. In fact, it's even promised in the Bible that if you follow Christ, there's going to be some harsh things, bad things, suffering is going to come your way. Per one example is Job. Look at his life. He was a good man. All hell broke loose. But let me give you the ultimate example, Jesus Christ, the perfect man who was hung on the cross for you and I, experienced extreme suffering so this mindset that if I live good, then good things will happen. I'm not denying the fact that, yeah, when you walk the way of wisdom, it's a good path, and there is a sowing and reaping law, and eventually we're going to get to that in the text. But you can do all the right things and still have bad things happen because we live in a fallen world, and we have an adversary that's gunning for us, and we still struggle with this sinful nature within us. And yet in the midst of that, it's not punitive, it's purifying. And oh my goodness, the things that I've learned through difficulties in my life, I wouldn't trade it for anything. There's, a, there's an intimacy and there's an awe in God that the only way that I was able to really in, enter into that was through difficulty, was through suffering. And I know his fatherly love is more than enough. I've, I've had that experience. Have you had that experience? Have you had a sense of the, his fatherly love when you've gone through difficulties? And there was a closeness and there was an intimacy that, oh my goodness, you, you almost thank God for the suffering because it brought to you a, an intimacy and a, and a quality of his glory and his beauty that you had never experienced up to that point. Almost sounds crazy. There's no suffering too hard to endure if it brings you and increases your capacity to experience more of his glory and his grace. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. 
And, and you guys know this. You guys have heard me say this many times before. Let me say it again. We don't serve him. We don't follow Jesus because he makes life better. We follow him because he's better than life. Did you hear me? He's better than life. Oh my goodness, he's better than life. If you're serving him because he makes life better, there's gonna be a time in your life when it doesn't seem like he's making life better. He's making it maybe even harder, little do you know, because he's wanting to draw your heart closer to him. And if you let him do that, man, you will be so delighted in him unlike you've ever experienced before because he is better than life. His steadfast love is better, better than anything in this life. I wouldn't trade that for anything. I love that. I love that. And so his fatherly love is more than enough. And as God's child, there's never a moment when you're not an object of his undivided attention, unconditional affection, and unhindered actions. Let me tell you something, you begin to believe that, and that's just more than a concept, it becomes a reality deep within your heart, and through Bible study and through prayer, you've prayed that deep, you're beating the gospel deep into your heart, oh my goodness. You can face anything, believe me, you can face anything, and you will put on display you will radiate his beauty and his glory. That's a great way, that's a great way to live. Look at the next one. What about when you're criticized? I know, I used to fight and flight, blow up, melt down, how dare you, I'll get in your face. You wanna get in my face? I'll get back in your face. I'm a type A kind of guy. Oh, you wanna come after me? I'll step up to you. Have you ever noticed that? There's certain people, some of you have that same personality, don't you? Somebody comes up and wants to threaten you or something like that, you step right into them. Come on. I'll take you. Some of you the other way, you're more compliant. Just like, okay, woohoo. My wife tends to be more compliant, but, but she got bold and started getting in my face. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> Believe me. I mean, she got in my face and I needed it. But, but how do you deal with criticism? If you're under law, you're going to fight, flight, you're going to blow up, you're going to melt down. But criticism, when you're under grace, you struggle. But you're open because your identity is not in your virtuous, moral, having it all together self. I mean, that's how you came to Christ because you realized that you weren't virtuous, moral, and had it all together. You were desperate for Jesus, and so you know that you grow by having that understanding too. It's your identity in Christ. What about prayer and Bible study? Well, under law, it heats up in suffering. It's more about petition. It's more about asking for things. But under grace, prayer and Bible study, oh my goodness, this is my favorite. This is the best thing about the Christian life. It's fellowship with God. It's more about praise and adoration. See, you love spending time with God. Under grace, you love spending time with God. Let me ask you this. Do you love spending time with God? You don't need to answer, but just think in your heart. Do you love spending time with God? Is he your greatest treasure and pleasure? Even better than the football games you're going to be watching today, okay? Even better than, than the best lunch you're going to have in, in, in maybe in another, another hour or so. Better than any of that. Do you find him more satisfying? And, and, and also that becomes almost kind of a means to continue to look to him, that he nurtures you. He, there's greater excitement than, than in him than anything else. And if you, don't, if you can't say that, that you love spending time with him and knowing him is life's greatest treasure and pleasure, spending time with him, it's because you're living too much on the left side of the of the chart, you're, you're under law, you don't understand grace, and so how do you, you change that? Man, understand, understand his love. We love him because he first loved us. Man, just bask in the reality 
of his love. Let me read to you some uh, quotes. Here's one of my favorite quotes. This is first a Bible, a Bible quote. You guys have heard this. This is uh, Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, O Lord of angel armies. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Oh my goodness, there's nothing, there's nothing like spending time with him. He's our greatest treasure and pleasure. That's what Christ came to give to us first and foremost. And then you guys are familiar with 8410, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. How many are familiar with that verse? You guys sing that song. So think of your best vacation spot. Where is it? Don't tell me, but just think about it in your head. Now he's saying that better is one day in, in intimacy with him and knowing him than a thousand in your best vacation spot. Pretty, pretty fabulous. I love it. Here's some others. These are old dead guys. <laughs> old dead theologians. Martin Luther. Luther says, oh, by the way, uh, did you guys have a happy Reformation Day yesterday? October 31st, 1517, 95 Theses was nailed uh, on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. It was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And these guys are far from being perfect, by the way. You guys know that. They have flaws, just like many of the Bible characters have flaws. So you, you, just with anybody, as you do with me, you eat the meat, spit out the bones, and you've got to be discerning. Hold to the truth and reject the, the negative parts. But listen to what he says here. Martin Luther says, Oh, I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. Do not forsake me, for if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Total dependency upon Christ. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I thank thee that this which is a necessity of my life. So what is a necessity of our life? Union and communion with God. So this which is a necessity of my life is also its greatest delight. So I do at this hour feast on thee. John Owen put it this way. Oh, to behold the glory of Christ. Herein would I live. Herein would I die. Herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections until all things below become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. And then one of my favorites, Brother Lawrence, he says, from practicing the presence of God, he says, the greatest pains and joys the world has to offer can't compare to the experience of walking with God. He also writes, when I realize that God has placed such a great treasure in my heart, that's the indwelling Holy Spirit, and being able to connect with him and talk to him, I didn't have to go out looking for it anymore. I didn't worry about finding it anymore because God's beautiful treasure was all there right in front of me. Like an unlimited expense account. I have permission to take and use any part of this treasure I want. We are so blind and should pity those who are satisfied with so little. God has the never-ending treasure. I love that. And now, fruit. What's the fruit? The law side, driven, disappointed, devastated, fruit side of the grace, love, joy, peace. You know how the rest of that list goes. We're going to be getting into that list in a few weeks. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, enjoying the many good things of life without being controlled by them. Now, here's, here's how this comes down in our life. If you love anything more than God, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. If it's your marriage or parenting, your kids, how your kids turn out, 
account, your athleticism, your career, your education. You're going to crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. If you try to get out of creation what only the creator can give you, you're going to be driven, disappointed, and devastated. And all you're trying to do is cover up the shame, and that can be taken care of if you'll come to Christ. And that's, that's what we need, need to understand. As I said, verse 27, I just want to spend just a few moments on verse 27. I want to kind of walk through the implications because I think this verse is for many of us here this morning. Some of you needed to hear this this morning. That's why you're here. God brought you here this morning so that you could hear this, the, the idea of what this is. It's one of the most astounding promises in the Bible. He says, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. That sounds crazy. What's, what's, your, what's the basis of your greatest shame in your life? What are you struggling with? He says, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So it's a quote from uh, Isaiah 54.1, originally for the Jewish exiles in Babylon who were feeling helpless and hopeless about ever returning home or having their own country again. And, and, and basically the, the scripture is saying to them from the prophet Isaiah, God's grace works best in weak and defeated lives and I will make you more numerous and great as a nation. Once again, I'm going to bring you back to the land and bring revivals to the people, that's what it's saying. But also it's relating to Genesis 16, the prophecy of Isaiah looks back to Genesis 16 in which God looks down on two women, one beautiful and fertile Hagar and the other barren and old Sarah. And he chooses to save the world through the barren one, which is astounding, it's typically how God works. Through Sarah would ultimately come the Messiah. And we, we studied that a few weeks ago, Gen uh, Galatians 3.16. He talks about her offspring, doesn't use the word plural, offsprings, but offspring, singular, speaking of Jesus, Galatians 3.16. But Paul is using this here, the same story that Isaiah used, and applies it to the Galatians who are being beaten up, spiritually speaking, by false teachers who are telling them that only the morally able and spiritually strong are accepted and used by God and the morally weak and spiritually barren are out of luck. And he's coming and saying, that's not true. And so there's a number of implications. Here's one implication that I think that we can apply to our lives is that we are all barren spiritually. We're all Sarah's. We're all old and barren. You're old and you're barren. And when you come to terms with that, spiritually speaking, that's what brings you to Christ and brings you to this promise. You see, they were feeling helpless and hopeless. She was beyond the, bearing, uh, the, the childbearing years. And so when we get that panic, we tend to hit the panic button and we try to make things happen. I gotta make something happen rather than rely on God and look to his promises and, and allow God to do his work. Here's another way that we can apply this to our lives. No matter how extreme your trials, temptations are, you are never helpless or hopeless because God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. What are you facing? God hasn't abandoned you. No matter how you feel, he hasn't abandoned you. You feel barren, you feel old, you feel helpless, you feel hopeless. He's still with you. He is for you and not against you. That's what it's saying. Here's another application. No matter how good your earthly circumstances are, they can never bring you the love, joy, peace that are found in Christ Jesus I know that there are people here in this church that they're, they're young guys and gals that would just absolutely love to get married. They long for that day when they can be married and it just hasn't happened yet. 
I know for those that are married that would just want to have kids, and for some reason, they can't. They struggle with that. I know those of you that have pursued certain career paths, certain education paths, hasn't worked out. You're feeling old and barren. You're feeling helpless and hopeless. There is a fulfillment and a fruitfulness with Christ that all the best marriages, homes full of children, best careers and successful lives cannot give you. That's what he's saying. And whatever you give up to follow Christ is nothing compared to what you gain in knowing him. You're gonna have to give up something if you wanna follow him, but let me tell you something, whatever you give up is nothing compared to what you have in him. That's what he's saying. I've got guys that, uh, some of my buddies are already retired from the fire department. I could be retired. I could have a, and some of them have homes up in the mountain, cabin homes and big homes here in the valley. I gave that up. And what I have right now, I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I look back when I made that decision of the Lord called me to do what I'm doing. Oh my goodness. It's been absolutely amazing. Whatever you give up to follow him is nothing compared to what you gain in him and knowing him and walking with him. That's a fact. That's what it's saying. That's why he's saying, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Listen to this story. There's a church in Harlem whose membership is mostly black that over 80 years ago, their congregation was founded by a German lady who lived in Manhattan. She was a dedicated Christian, and through her Bible study, two African-American women from Harlem came to Christ. <clears throat> they asked her to begin a ministry up in Harlem to reach more of, of their friends. The German lady was engaged at the time. Her fiance was very much against her doing such a ministry, and uh, he said he would call off the wedding if she went. As she agonized over the competing call, she felt from God over against her desire to be married. She came upon Isaiah 54.1. Isaiah 54.1. More are the children of the desolate woman than of she who has a husband. And she followed God's call, lost her fiance, and the new church the new church was born, which today is Bethel Gospel. You can look it up. You can do research and find that church. We looked it up, and it exists today. That's their heritage. That's where they came from. She had and has far more spiritual children than any physical ones her lost marriage would have given. And this is just one example of this promise. And then, obviously, next two points. Let's, let's knock this out. Let's finish this up. Self-image. Under law, self-image, swaggering or sniveling, under grace, humble confidence. Verse 28, 29. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise, just as at the time, at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also is it now. So religious people, so if you're on the left side of the column, religious people tend to be bitter when life doesn't go well. They're smug, they're self-righteous, they're holier than thou, they're critical, cynical, touchy, and sensitive to criticism. 
and, and live lives of joyless, fear-motivated compliance. But, but those that are under grace, you understand, you understand that you were so sinful that Jesus had to die for you. There was no other way. It was indispensable. And that eliminates swagger. But at the same time, you've never been more loved. You've never experienced more love. He loved you so much. He wanted to die for you. And that eliminates sniveling. Why would we ever snivel? We've got him. And then change. How do we move from the left side of the column to the right side of the column? Is it acts of the will? No, it's the loves of the heart. We begin to change our heart's deepest loyalties and affections. We've got to realize that there's something competing for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. And... Uh, and how do you move from, from moralism, slavery, to gospel freedom? Verse 30, cast out the slave woman and her son, Paul speaking allegorically. How? Realizing that we are, verse 31, that's verse 30, verse 31 is not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Change happens not by a morally restrained will motivated out of fear and pride. That's not going to last. It's superficial but a supernaturally transformed heart. It's not, a, it's not becoming a nice person, it's becoming a brand new person. So it's a morally, it's a, a supernaturally transformed heart motivated out of a heart that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ. So not only should we not make our performance, our morality, our moralism, our worth to try to cover up our shame, but also we should not make our getting married, having children, our career success or money our worth. In fact, what we need to do is when those things begin to take over our lives, is that we need to look at those things and say, you're a good thing, but you're not the best thing. I don't need you. I have Jesus. Listen to what Augustine said. Augustine says this, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys. Basically, he's putting everything in creation as fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy, you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Oh, Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation, you who are sweeter than all pleasures. What is he saying there? Augustine had a sip of great wine and says, this is good, but you're better. Augustine had sex and says, this is good, but you're much better. Augustine had great wealth and said, this is good, but you're better by far. And on and on we could do that with our own lives. You who are sweeter than all pleasures. Not just you who are sweeter than all suffering. No, you're, you're better than the best. Listen to me. He's better than the best of what life offers. His love is better. His steadfast love is better than life. It's better than life. Let's pray. I'm going to pray the, the, the right side of the column here that God would make this even more real to our hearts. God, thank you that we are accepted and therefore out of that acceptance we obey and that creates within us, Lord, may it create within us this good news, indescribable, indestructible joy. And God, uh, may we... May it not be about willpower. May it be about your power working in our lives and may we obey you to enjoy and display your glory and when bad circumstances happen, may we be reminded that it's not punitive but it's purifying. You're wanting to draw our hearts closer to you so that we can experience your fatherly love which is more, it's more than enough. When we're criticized, God, may we be reminded that our identity is in, in Christ and who we are in him. May we desire and long for fellowship with you and may our time with you be more about praise and adoration 
than anything else. And may it produce within us love, joy, peace, unlike we've ever experienced before. And may our self-image be humble confidence. And may the deepest loyalties and affections of our heart be yours, God. May they be focused on you as you transform our lives for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.